Welcome to the world according to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and market newsmakers to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I'm your host, Jonathan Boyer. Our guest today is Frank Blake, former CEO of Home Depot. After graduating from Columbia Law School, Mr. Blake clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. He later served as Deputy Counsel to Vice President George Bush. In the interest of time, I am skipping a bit, but he later became Senior Vice President of Corporate Business Development at General Electric, where Mr. Blake reported to Jack Welch. Frank left GE to become Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. In 2002, Home Depot recruited Blake to lead its business development and corporate operations and eventually became its CEO in 2007. While he was CEO, Home Depot's stock price more than doubled that of the S&P 500. I personally would like to thank Frank as our average costs on HD shares are $29.56. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The stock currently trades at $176. Frank currently is non-executive chairman of Delta Airlines, is on the board of directors of Procter & Gamble, as well as Macy's. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Pleasure to be joining you. Uh, Thank you. Frank, prior to becoming CEO of Home Depot, you accomplished more in your career than most people do in their lifetime. However, you virtually had no retail experience. Can you tell us the story of how the board picked you to become CEO of a retailer with more than 300,000 employees? I can tell you that including up to the second before the board called in late December of 2006 that I had never contemplated being the CEO of Home Depot. It was a surprise to me. I, In fact, my first reaction to the board was, you ought to take a day to think about this and think about whether I'm the right person to lead the company because, as you said, I really did not have a lot of retail experience. I've been at Home Depot for five years at that point, but I've been largely doing M&A activity for Home Depot just as I had done at GE. I took the same day. They said, fine, we'd take a day. I took the same day to think about whether I could do the job, and at the end, they obviously offered me the job, and I took it. I think, in reflection, that one of the advantages that I had and probably why they asked me was that I appeared consistently in front of the board as we reviewed various deals as we were building out what was at the time a business called Home Depot Supply. Still exists, publicly traded company, HD Supply. So they got to see me. They got to see how I thought about businesses, and I guess through that, they got comfortable with my leading the company. Speaking of HD Supply, one of your first actions as becoming CEO was to actually exit those businesses, which I believe you had were instrumental or at least presented to the board to purchase them. Can you explain and walk through the process of kind of the strategic pivot? Absolutely. The dominant reason for deciding to sell HD Supply was I believed that the company needed to focus on its core business, which was the retail business. And while it turned out that HD Supply went through some very difficult market times, in fact, even more difficult than Home Depot Supply, it was not because I had great insight that that was about to happen. Rather, it was because I thought the company would be better off focusing all its resources at doing the best job it could in the retail space 
and that to do multiple things at the same time, i.e. also be great at the commercial industrial distribution business was something that I thought was a bridge too far for the business. And certainly I knew was asking more of me than I could do. Around the time you became CEO, Home Depot was what we here at Boyer refer to as a fallen angel, a once darling of Wall Street that was now unwanted and unloved. How should long-term investors analyze a turnaround situation? What should they look for? As oftentimes these businesses look cheap, however, they may be cheap for a reason. <laughs> I think, I mean, there were a lot of things that we did at Home Depot for the turnaround. And I won't go to the cultural aspects of it, but the cultural aspects are important. But the easiest thing for investors to get a handle on are the changes in capital allocation. So in the context of Home Depot, I think one of the most important things we did early on, and in this I'm very proud we were ahead of most retailers, is we stopped building new stores. In fact, we took a half a billion dollar write-off clearing out the pipeline of all of our store additions. That did three things. The first is it sent a clear message to the organization and frankly to investors that growth in the business was not gonna come through the typical retail way of adding new square footage. The second thing it did was it focused us internally. So. You know, if, if you're going to grow and you always have an imperative to grow, we understood that we were going to have to grow by making our stores a better experience and more productive. And the third thing for investors is, is frankly, it, it loosened up a lot of CapEx to spend on both improving the in-store and online experience and in returning dollars to the shareholders. My belief is most, you know, if you're talking about a significant turnaround situation, you ought to expect some significant change in capital allocation decisions because, you know, that's, that's one of the most important things companies do. And if you're not changing your capital allocation, but you say, hey, I'm going to turn around the company through other ways, that's much harder to do because I, I do believe things follow the money. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that just to switch gears a little bit, and this is certainly timely with President Trump's recent tweets, is, is Amazon. Right. You are on record as referring to them as a dark star <laughs> and has yeah. said you don't like the company. Do they have an unfair advantage? And do you think as a standalone retailer without the cash flow of Amazon Web Services, they would survive? And I guess more germane, is there a potential antitrust case to be had? First, I said that while the press picked that up, I said that more in jest than anything else. I think Amazon is a terrific competitor and ups the game for everyone in retail. And I've thought that for a long time. So going back now eight or nine years, we started thinking at Home Depot that Amazon was our principal competitor, not others. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in no position to comment on the antitrust issues. Their market share is not that large. So I'd be surprised if there is a, an 
antitrust issue. What I can tell you is, is they set a very high bar on customer satisfaction and performance, but every company out there should be setting that high a bar and should be trying to clear it. And I believe that brick and mortar retailers like Home Depot actually need to, and, and Home Depot does this, need to think aggressively about how the physical space actually gives them a competitive advantage over Amazon and leverage that advantage. Speaking of that, what are the characteristics that it takes, you think, in today's day and age with Amazon to become a successful retailer? What type of companies do you think will make it? What won't? And from a business perspective, what should investors be looking for when evaluating retail names? I believe, first, it's absolutely clear now. I, I mean, I think it's been clear for a while, but I think everyone understands it now. That if you ask the question, what does the customer want in terms of physical space versus digital buying convenience, they want both. And every single physical retailer has to be figuring out how it best integrates its online assets to have a truly seamless first-class customer experience. I think every purely digital operator has to be thinking through how it leverages some physical presence because there are lots of areas, and I think Amazon recognizes this as well as others, there are lots of areas where physical presence is a very important part of the customer experience, and the customer expects that. So I think what investors should be looking for is you know, what retailers are the most dialed in to the overall customer experience, both online and in the stores. Well, a company like Kohl's that's now partnering with, with Amazon to, for exchanges, they, they seem to be adopting well, and HD has clearly done a great job. Yeah. I know you can't comment on, on Macy's as you're on the board. Right. Are there any other companies that you think are doing a good job navigating, navigating this? Oh, I think, I, I mean, I have, there are lots of interesting companies in retail. I won't obviously comment on Macy's or the competitors around Macy's. For a long time, I've been, this is Amazon aside, I've been a big fan of Costco. They run a great retail operation. I'm extremely impressed by their proprietary brand effort. I mean, when you stop and think about it, I don't know if you shop Costco often, but if you go to a Costco, you can buy under their Kirkland brand everything from gasoline, so go fill up your car, to fine wine. And they stay true to their customer value statement, whether you're buying the gasoline or the wine. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, that, talks a, that talks to a lot of focus and attention to giving the customers great value. Thank you. Um, absolutely. One of your first jobs was working under the first President Bush, actually while he was vice president. There was a particular story that you had told me at a, a prior event that I, I think would be interesting to hear again, if you don't mind, in terms of his note writing and, sure. and how that has impacted you. Jonathan, what you're referencing is one of the great things about working in the vice president's office is it's a fairly small office. You get to see what the man actually does. 
And in Vice President Bush's case, one of the things I saw, saw was that he'd start every day writing his own notes to people, writing personal notes. And I knew as a staff person, when you got a note from the vice president, you know, it made your day, week, month. And I'd never really been focused on how powerful a tool that is. Taking time to recognize and connect with people and do it in a disciplined fashion. I actually saw Jack Welch do the same thing at GE. And so when I became CEO of Home Depot, one of the things I did was I, I had a theory about the direction that I wanted to move the company in terms of customer service. And I would write every Sunday, give or take 200 notes to largely hourly associates, recognizing and celebrating them for great customer service. And we had a whole process around it. Because I think that when you get notes like that, first you feel better about the place you're working because you feel like the person in charge is paying attention to you. And secondly, it reverberates through the whole organization that you're doing it. So I'm a big believer in note writing. I'm a big believer in taking the time to recognize and thank people. Thank you. You had entered uh, becoming CEO at Home Depot probably at the worst time in terms of the U.S. housing market going you know, yeah. U.S. housing market. It was an opportunity then. Where do you think we are now in the recovery? And, you know, obviously with mortgage deductibility and property taxes being changed, you know, how is that going to affect U.S. housing? And what inning do you think we are in the, in the recovery? It's a great question. And the inning analogy starts to... So here's my... I'll, I'll take a step back and say, first, you're exactly right. You could We used to look at, and the company still uses, although relying a little less heavily on it, but we used to look at a statistic called PFRI as a percent of GDP, PFRI standing for private fixed residential investment as a percent of GDP. And that would give you, because the government's been collecting the data for 65 years, gives you a historical perspective on how much money is usually spent as a percent of GDP on housing-related activity. And you could see that it reached an all-time high in 2005, 2006, and then precipitously dropped from the back half of 2006 through basically to 2011. The interesting thing about this recovery is that as well as Home Depot is doing, that is still not at the average 60-year percent of GDP spend on housing. There are lots of interesting crosswinds holding the spending down, particularly just availability of new homes. But I think the silver lining to that, the good news of that, is that from a housing perspective, this recovery has a chance to be longer, steadier than most because you haven't seen the dramatic spike in housing activity that you saw in other economic periods. So I would say we're in an interesting baseball game where the fifth and sixth innings, call it, or, you know, which is probably about right, but the fifth and sixth innings are longer than most fifth and sixth innings. 
where you're seeing a lot of time spent, you know, scratching around and both sides playing long innings is what I would say. But I think it's still a very positive. You look at, you know, the millennial generation just now stepping out into home building age. You look at, as I say, relatively constrained new home inventory, aging home stock. I think it sets up for a good, good time. As CEO, you had what some would call the unfortunate task of having to deal with Wall Street. And from a CEO perspective, you know, what do you think Wall Street does well? What do they do a poor job of? And is there anything that they should be doing differently? I'm probably on the minority in this and saying that actually a lot of investors look at short-term results. They care a lot about how your quarterly results measure up against what you said should be expected. And people say that's bad and gets a short-term focus. I've got to say, I look at it the other way around. And the way I look at it is, as the CEO of a company, I'm asking people to give me their money for what we're doing. I ought to be doing both. I ought to be saying, give me your money and I'll be able to tell you on a quarterly basis, this is where I'm planning and you should expect me to get there. And if I don't get there, I ought to have a pretty darn good explanation for you. I don't think it's reasonable for me to say, give me your money. I'm not really going to tie you into what's happening short term, but trust me because I got some great long term plans. And I believe that there's a value that comes with the discipline of making your quarterly commitments. And I think Wall Street, my sense was Wall Street does a pretty good job of holding firms accountable to both the short term and long term. And you just have to be transparent about it. I think where you get in trouble is if you get out too far over your skis in terms of what you're going to be able to deliver, or you don't express well enough what's actually happening in your business. One last question. When you left GE, could you ever imagine that its market cap would be where it is today and actually, you know, less than that of, of Home Depot? And, nope. and can the ship be right? could not imagine it. And can the ship be righted? I'm not close enough to know whether the ship can be righted. I know I spent most of my time at GE working in the power business, where I understand some of the problems originated. It's a great business. I have a lot of residual feeling for GE. I have enormous respect for Jack Welch. I think he's one of the great leaders of our time. So I'm pulling for it to recover. Thank you for your time, uh, Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure, and hopefully you can come back again soon. All right, and thanks for holding on to our shares from 29 on. It's been a terrific run, and thank you for that as well. If you would like to receive a complimentary electronic copy of Harriman's book of investing rules, The Do's and Don'ts of the World's Greatest Investors, please go to www.boyervaluegroup.com forward slash podcast and complete a brief survey. That's www.boyervaluegroup.com forward slash podcast. We'll see you next time.